0: From the studios of Postscript Media and Canary Media. So
1: is your name well-known in Cape Coral? (laughs) It certainly was five years ago. (laughs) Maybe it is again. I don't know. (laughs) Posters of you (laughs) hanging up. Don't talk to this journalist. You know, my mantra about it is that nature is out of whack down here, but Cape Coral, nature is way out of whack.
0: Mike Grunwald is an energy and climate journalist who lives in South Florida, and he loves it there. But he also loves to poke at Florida's poor planning. And in 2017, he wrote a piece for Politico about Cape Coral, the boomtown built on swampland that is uniquely vulnerable to hurricanes. A visit to Cape Coral is an exciting experience. As you travel the seven miles from Cape Coral's sister city of Fort Myers... It's hard to believe that everything you see has been built within so few short years.
1: Well, yeah, it's sort of Florida Squared, right? It's like a peninsula jutting off the peninsula. (laughs) And Cape Coral literally had, like, no planning.
0: Just in the past
2: few years, Cape Coral, with more miles of waterways than Venice, Italy, has become a legendary way of life on Florida's Gulf Coast.
0: But there's more to come. Much more. Cape Coral is a city of a couple hundred thousand people in southwest Florida. It's basically a wetland nestled next to Fort Myers, one of the fastest growing areas in the country. Construction of Cape Coral started in the late 1950s. It was the vision of two brothers who got wealthy peddling baldness tonic made of wool grease. They knew how to sell anything— including a city built on water.
1: So these scammers came to Cape Coral and they you know, they found the swampland and the only way they made it vaguely habitable was to build 400 miles of drainage ditches, the most of any city in the world. But of course, they don't call them drainage ditches, they call them canals, like it's Venice. You know, they're real estate amenities. The aerial pictures of Cape Coral are wild. It looks like a uniform set of
0: floating blocks with houses neatly arranged on top. And from far enough away, it resembles an aquaculture operation more than a city.
1: And so the place was always, you know, not only in harm's way, but with these canals to carry the storm throughout the city when it does come, um, incredibly low-lying, incredibly wet, um, just not the kind of place where you should put 200,000 humans.
0: Mike went to Cape Coral after Hurricane Irma swept through the area five years ago, and he wanted to understand the mentality of Floridians who were flocking there and buying houses.
1: I remember I went out on a boat with, uh, with one guy and he, we were kind of going through the canals. He like keeps, you know, he's kind of a middle-class guy, but he can keep his boat. He has waterfront property because he's on a canal. He keeps his boat in his backyard. And, uh, you know, we're just driving around. He was telling me about taking his grandkids out to look at the dolphins and manatees. Um, it's a beautiful day. The palm trees are swaying in the breeze. And he's like, you know, doesn't matter if a hurricane comes down here. People are going to keep coming." And it was funny, because then he sort of paused and he realized and he said, you know, if we got like a 15-foot storm surge, that could wipe the city out. And then he paused again and he, I remember he took a sip of his beer. and was like, nah, people keep coming anyway, because <laughs> it really is nice and we have low taxes and there's this feeling that, you know, kind of we're not responsible for the consequences of our actions.
0: And then in late September, Hurricane Ian rolled in. The near-Category 5 hurricane didn't create the 15-foot storm surges that could destroy the city, but the 11-foot storm surge knocked out the water supply, electricity, and left most houses underwater.
1: About 60 years after its founding, this is what Cape Coral looks like on a sunny day. This is what the area looked like today. There is so much water, it is hard to tell where the canals are and where the streets are. So basically, you don't have a single home in Cape Coral that didn't sustain some kind of damage and some kind of flooding. And so I think, uh, you know, this was a really bad storm that's going to do billions of dollars of damage and is going to make people think, huh, was this the greatest idea? And then a few months will pass and they'll be like, yeah, it's still a pretty good idea.
0: This is The Carbon Copy. I'm Stephen Lacey. This week, a tale of two cities in Florida. What Cape Coral tells us about Florida's unwillingness to plan for climate change, and what a nearby solar-powered city that weathered Hurricane Ian tells us about what's possible.
2: Faced with the surge of distributed energy resources, electric cars, and grid constraints, utilities are ramping up dynamic pricing, but the results are mixed. If utilities don't implement rates correctly or transparently, it could be a major roadblock for the energy transition and a headache for customers. On June 13th, Latitude Media and GridX will host a frontier forum to examine the imperative of good rate design and the consequences of getting it wrong. Register at the link in the show notes or go to latitudemedia.com events.
0: Clean energy and climate tech are policy-driven industries, and anyone working in this field touches local, state, and federal policy in a very real way. And that's why you should be listening to Political Climate, a podcast from Latitude Media and Boundary Stone Partners that delivers an insider's view on climate policy and politics. Every other week, co-hosts Julia Piper, Emily Dominich, and Brandon Hurlbuck cover the nuances of government funding, regulations, backroom negotiations, and the election, of course. Political Climate is a show for people who want authentic conversations and strong opinions, from voices across the political spectrum, listen at LatitudeMedia.com or subscribe to the show anywhere you get your podcasts. Mike Grunewald is a longtime journalist based in Miami. He is a columnist at Canary Media who writes about food and climate, and he co-hosts our show on food and climate called Climavores. And in 2007, he published a book called The Swamp, The Everglades, Florida, and the Politics of Paradise. It detailed the destruction and attempted resurrection of the Everglades. Now, Mike is an unapologetic Floridian. He's also unapologetically critical of Florida's build-now, figure-it-out-later approach to development. When you say Florida is an ecological Ponzi scheme with no risk management, what do you mean?
1: Up until the 20th century, Florida was, was really America's last frontier. It was pretty much an uninhabited wasteland. And it was really water management. People talk about social security or bug spray that uh, that made Florida what it is today. But it was really water management, uh, you know, around around World War II, where they finally started to get it right. And then you just had this incredible boom. And since then, really, the the business of Florida has been bringing in more people. We bring in a thousand people every day. You know, we're not a you're know, not a place that has industry our business is real estate and tourism. We have a lot of agriculture too, but a, a little known fact is that our biggest agricultural industry is nurseries, which is essentially growing sod and palm trees for suburban lawns. So really, our entire economy—you know—where we bring in a thousand people a day, but most of those people they either like, you know, they work in a nursery, or they, you know, lay tile, or they're a mortgage broker or a real estate lawyer. They're somebody whose job depends on bringing in another thousand people. Tomorrow. And so that's what I mean by this ecological Ponzi scheme where eventually, kind of, the bill comes due. And Hurricane Ian is one of those moments where suddenly we've put 20 million people in harm's way and uh, the harm arrived.
0: Rescuers struggled to reach people stranded by the floodwaters that Ian left behind after raking the state overnight. When all the insurance payouts are tallied, Hurricane Ian could be the costliest storm ever to hit Florida. And most of those costs are from water, both coastal surges and record inland flooding. The efforts are hampered by flooded roads and damaged bridges, turning homes into islands and causing severe damage. And in Cape Coral, the 400 miles of drainage canals, which have been stressed by multiple 100-year flood events in the last five years, were quickly overwhelmed. Decades of dredging and filling invaluable wetlands across southwest Florida created a coastline incapable of handling water.
1: Even in a state that's
2: no stranger to hurricanes, the destruction in the wake of Ian is staggering. More than 100 deaths, most by drowning. Communities in
1: tatters. The price tag for recovery? Estimated at more than $100 billion. You know, I don't think there will be a lot of soul-searching about, you know, Do we belong here? Does a place like Cape Coral, you know, should it be rebuilt? It's going to be rebuilt. The hope for those of us who, you know, or at least have been trying to shriek in the wilderness about sustainability issues is that, you know, we can maybe build back a little better, um, a little safer, a little higher, Rick Scott, when he was governor, one of the first things he did was get rid of Florida's growth management agency. And since then, it's been all growth and no management. And there's this idea down here that planning is kind of communism, um, that, uh, that it's the nanny state telling you what to do. And so, again, I I try to point out to people, particularly people on the left, that there is something really alluring about, you know, Ron DeSantis and the Republicans who have controlled Florida for 20 years telling you, come on down, don't pay taxes, um, don't invest in infrastructure, don't worry about the future. You can use as much water as you want. You can build wherever you want. Nobody's going to tell you what to do. Um, That's really attractive. And now, of course, we see the consequences, and the consequences will be Florida's going to put its hand out and ask Washington, D.C. to pay for all this, and probably they will. So
0: about 35 miles northeast of Cape Coral is another community that's been getting a ton of attention in the math- aftermath of Ian. It's called Babcock Ranch. You wrote about it back in 2017. It's this 18,000-acre community that is empowered completely by solar. It was... Developed with special water management techniques to withstand extreme weather and flooding. And the lights and the internet stayed on throughout the entire storm with very little damage. What is Babcock Ranch and what's different about it?
1: Well, uh, Babcock is its really Florida's first s- community that was di- designed to be a really sustainable community. And uh, it was funny. I first met the developer. He's a guy named Sid Kitson. Um, he was a former professional football player. Um, I met him. I think it was 2008 or 2009. He came to see me in Miami because he had read The Swamp, and he was pitching this idea of a solar powered, eco friendly town in in the middle of Southwest Florida. And he was doing this, you know, during the like in the throes of the Great Recession, and. I kind of thought he was a little crazy and even he was like, you know, all my friends are telling me that, uh, you know, I got hit in the head a little bit too much out and, you know, out on the field. Um, (laughs) but, uh, but I still wrote this kind of credulous story about this really cool idea this guy had. And, but then sure enough, like, you know, the economy was just too brutal and he couldn't build it. Um, but then he, you know, he called me again, like eight years later and he was like, Hey, we're building it. And so, like you said, uh, Babcock Ranch is how you would build in Florida if you were really thinking seriously about the future. First of all, it's it's at 30 feet elevation, which, you know, in South Florida, that's like the Himalayas. Um, <laughs> and uh, so, you know, it doesn't, you, know, you can have a gigantic 15-foot storm surge and they don't care. And yes, they did a lot of, you know, they use native vegetation. First of all, I mean, it's surrounded, Sid's original deal, I think he bought a hundred thousand acres and gifted like. 90000 to the state. So it's, you know, since I've written so much about how Florida is kind of destroying its natural heritage and the natural resources that make Florida attractive, that make us not the New Jersey Turnpike with better weather, for Sid, it was really important to try to to keep those resources, to have the hiking trails, to have the natural beauty and the, uh, you know, the wildlife that really does attract people to Florida. But also, unlike Cape Coral, He actually, he built a little downtown area first Cape Coral, they just built houses. They just built lots and just sold off the swampland with no infrastructure whatsoever. Sid built responsibly, like you mentioned. He uh, he insisted on making it a solar powered town. Every house has is uh, like they're all Gagalianaires, right? They all have the the high speed internet. Um, so this was a, the idea is to make a place where people can live, where people can work, um, where people can enjoy nature, and where people will be safe. Um, The one thing it doesn't have that's part of, for many people, the Florida dream is the kind of oceanfront, waterfront property. But otherwise, like, it's an awesome place to live. People are flocking there. They're paying good money. Um, The town is doing really well. And, you know, at Buildout, you know, it's going to have 60, 70, 80,000 people there while still maintaining the natural beauty of the area um, rather than just draining all the swampland and selling it off.
2: Mark your calendars for June 13th at noon Eastern. That's when Latitude Media and GridX will host a live interactive discussion on implementing modern utility rates. Dynamic rates are vital for motivating customers to electrify, adopt DERs, and embrace demand flexibility. Utility rates could make or break the energy transition. So how do we do it right? Join Latitude Media's Stephen Lacey, GridX CEO Scott Ingström, and economist Ahmad Farouki for an in-depth discussion on the future of rates on June 13th. Register for free by clicking the link in the show notes or go to com slash events. I'm Julia Piper. I'm
0: Brandon Hurlbut. And I'm Emily
2: Dominich. A little over a year ago, political climate took a break so we could focus on the groundwork of implementing America's biggest ever climate bill, the Inflation Reduction Act. I'm excited to say political climate is back. And I'll be joined by my two co-hosts to riff on the top political stories and insider scoops from state houses to the halls of Congress to regulatory agencies and even international climate talks. We'll explain how those developments are driving industry decisions today.
1: Political climate is a show for people
2: who want authentic conversations. And to learn about how Energy and climate policy is shaped within both political parties from the people who have actually helped shape it. So join me, Brandon, and Emily every other week, starting in April, for fresh episodes of Political Climate. Subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: So a place like Florida, I mean, you have to eventually consider building like the way they are in Babcock Ranch if we want to withstand what is coming we we know what's coming it's already happening and that's just the reality and of course in a place like florida where you really clearly described the now mine more mentality it's really difficult so how do you how, how do you see any change coming in florida that could get decision making building codes whatever it would take closer to something like Babcock Ranch
1: well i think first of all the good news is that there hasn't been nothing Um, particularly in my part of the world, in, uh, in Southeast Florida, in Miami, Fort Lauderdale, there has been, you know, where, and again, locally, this is while Southwest Florida is extremely right-wing and extremely Republican uh southeast Florida much less is more democratic and more open to thinking about climate change and there really has been a, a focus on resilience in the the last decade where actually when hurricane Irma which wasn't a direct hit on Miami but it hit us at like you know category one and there were a lot of scary pictures of you know the rivers of water flooding through downtown but actually there wasn't a lot of damage um, those river, it's fine if water flows through. If uh, the vulnerable property is not on the first floor, you know, if you've left that for a garage space or at least uh, you know atrium space, um, and put the offices up, up and the residences upstairs out of harm's way, and so there really has been a focus on that. I when I lived in Miami Beach, where I was, you know, I now I'm now at 17 feet elevation in the city of Miami. But when I was on Miami Beach, I was, uh, I was in that neighborhood where reporters used to come constantly because we got flooding even on sunny days. Biscayne Bay would come up through our, our storm drains. And so we had some flooding and everybody talked about how Miami is becoming Atlantis. I always thought it was really kind of overhyped. But they invested $100 million in drainage pumps. And now that neighborhood doesn't flood. So again, money solves a lot of problems. And there is a lot of money down here, but foresight also solves a lot of problems. And that has been certainly less universal.
0: So you, you wrote that the story of Florida is about the dreamers and schemers trying to get rid of all that water and drain the swamp. In the 20, That's in the 20th century. And in the 21st century, do you think that the, the climate dreamers will take over in Florida?
1: It's a great question. I mean... Look, what I always try to point out about those dreamers and schemers of the 20th century is that their lies came true. They, they were peddling these, this crock of crap about how we're going to turn these, you know, it may look like uninhabitable swampland now, but someday we're going to have millions of people down here and it's going to be paradise. And the suckers bought and the hucksters got rich um, but the suckers were right, and so were the hucksters, right? Um, so now in the 21st century, I just think we have to accept that we're, you know, we can't start over, you know, in some sense, those are Florida's original sins we have built here. You know, we're not going to tell 200,000 people to leave Cape Coral. We're not going to tell 10 million people to leave South Florida. We're here, you know, um, for better or worse, and most of the time, for better. But I do think climate is going to become increasingly unignorable. Um, Florida is really good at ignoring, really good at forgetting, but that's going to become harder and harder to do as these storms get more intense, as the, the rains get worse. Um, as the seas get higher, as the saltwater intrusion screws up more of our drinking water, we are going to have to think more and more about tomorrow when this has really historically been a place that thinks about today. Mike Grunwald
0: is the co-host of the Climavores podcast, which we here at PostScript Media produce with him and Tamar Haspel. He's also the author of The Swamp, The Everglades, Florida and the Politics of Paradise, which you wrote in 2007, but I understand has now
1: rocketed up the charts again. (laughs) For some reason, people are are interested in the uh, sustainability of Florida these days.
0: The Carbon Copy is a co-production of Postscript Media and Canary Media. Go check out Mike's column on food at canarymedia.com. You can also listen to his podcast that he co-hosts with Tamar Haspel, who is a really awesome food journalist. Uh, That's called Climavores, and you can find that anywhere you get your podcasts. So go tune into that. This episode was produced by me and Alexandria Herr. Ann Bailey is our editor. Sean Marquand is our engineer. Postscript Media is supported by Prelude Ventures a venture capital firm that partners with entrepreneurs to address climate change across a wide range of sectors, advanced energy, food and agriculture, transportation and logistics, advanced materials and manufacturing, and advanced computing. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing your thoughts on social media and giving us a rating and review. We will catch you next week. I'm Stephen Lacey, and this is The Carbon Copy.